Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. I'm excited to spend a few minutes with you. And wherever you are as you listen to this podcast, I hope what you hear today can bless your life and help you live a bit better. By the way, if you find these podcasts helpful, you could help by sharing these podcasts with a friend. Word of mouth helps us further our mission. It just may be what your friend needs in their life today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about your destiny in life. Now, few people, if any, can name the 20th president of the United States. No wonder he only served in office for six months. On July 2nd, 1881, a man named Charles Guiteau shot President James Garfield and killed him. Guiteau believed it was largely his efforts that got Garfield elected, and he should have been given a consultantship. But this was far from the truth. Guiteau was abusive to his wife, published a book that was entirely plagiarized, and was living destitute in Washington in 1881. He felt God had told him to kill the president. So he borrowed money, bought a handgun, and traveled to the Baltimore Railroad Station. There, Garfield was leaving with his wife to the beach where she was going to recover from poor health. Guiteau knew the president's schedule because it was published in a newspaper article. As Garfield entered the station, looking forward to a vacation with his wife, his assassin stepped forward and shot Garfield twice from behind. It would take weeks for Garfield to die, but he eventually succumbed to the infection brought on by the lack of sterile medical care. But Garfield's tenure as president, while short, was only a brief snapshot of a very long and influential life in which he did a lot of good. Garfield studied law and became an attorney. He was elected as a member of the Ohio State Senate. He opposed the Confederate secession during the Civil War and was a major general in the Union Army. Garfield was elected to Congress. His aptitude for mathematics influenced his life, and he published the Pythagorean theory in geometry. He and his wife, Lucretia, had seven children. Two died in childhood, but five grew to be remarkable people. He was a family man, and when he died, he and his wife were celebrating their 23rd wedding anniversary. But the presidency, a life filled with goodness, and the legacy he left was not obvious in Garfield's young life. In fact, as a young man, he made choices that would make those in his life question whether he would turn out good at all. Garfield was born in a log cabin in Orange Township, Ohio, in 1831. Candace Millard wrote, In the early 1800s, Ohio was the American frontier, wild and largely unmapped. Iroquois and Shawnee tribes were still scattered throughout the Ohio Valley, fiercely fighting for the little land they had left. Although the land was available for $2 an acre, 10 years would pass before Abram Garfield and his brother had saved enough money for a farm. Soon after their arrival, they met and married a pair of sisters from New Hampshire named Eliza and Alpha Ballou. Abraham and Eliza married. They started a farm, and not many years into their marriage, one day, Abram saw wildfire racing towards his cabin. He met it with equal ferocity. He worked all day digging ditches, hacking away brush, and fighting back the roaring, choking flames. Somehow, miraculously, he saved his farm, but his victory came at a high cost. Within days, he would die, leaving Eliza with four children to feed. The youngest, James, was only two years old. 
Eliza's dream was for her children to go to school and become educated. Millard again said this, James, unfortunately, had different dreams than his mother. Although he could not swim and admitted that he knew almost nothing about the water except what he had read, he longed for a life at sea. As he was hundreds of miles from any ocean, the best he could do was the Erie and Ohio canals, the canal his father had helped to build. At 16 years of age, James Garfield left home to become a canal man, breaking his mother's heart and, she feared, putting an end to her hopes for him. Garfield's first job on the canal was a driver, the lowliest position among a group of rough and occasionally violent men. As the months passed, he became increasingly comfortable with the life he had fashioned for himself. He knew that the work he was doing and the men he met along the way likely made him ripe for ruin, but he was willing to take that chance. Before he could drink in every species of vice, however, the course of his young life took a sudden turn. As he stood alone on the bow one night, struggling with a coiled rope, he lost his balance and, before he could right himself, fell into the canal. Now, he had fallen in before more than a dozen times, but each time it had been daylight and there had been men on the deck to pull him out. Now it was midnight, and Garfield was certain that he would drown. He cried out for help, although he knew it was useless. Everyone on the boat was fast asleep. As he searched frantically and blindly for something to save his life, his hand suddenly struck the rope that had been the cause of his fall. Gripping it tightly, he found that with a great struggle, he could use it to slowly pull himself up until finally he fell heavily into the boat. As he sat dripping and scared on the deck of the canal boat, Garfield wondered why he was still alive. The rope he grabbed was not secured to anything on the boat. When he had pulled on it, it should have fallen off the deck, slipping to the bottom of the canal and leaving him to die. Carefully examining it, he said, I found that just where it came over the edge of the boat, it had been drawn into a crack and there it knotted itself. I sat down in the cold of the night in my wet clothes and contemplated the matter. I didn't believe that God had paid any attention to me on my own account, but I thought he had saved me for my mother and for something greater and better than canaling. His life would change dramatically in the years to come, and Garfield would never be able to tell the story of that night without wonder. Looking back on it, moreover, he would have much clearer and broader understanding of its importance than he could have hoped to have had at age 16. Providence only could have saved my life, he wrote years later, struggling to understand all that had happened to him in the intervening years. Providence, therefore, thinks I am worth saving. When Garfield returned home from the canal, he entered into his mother's house. Here's what he said. As I approached the door at about nine o'clock in the evening, I heard my mother engaged in prayer. And during the prayer, she referred to me, her son, away, God only knew where, and asked that he might be preserved in health and return to her. When Eliza entered her prayer, her son quietly stepped into the cabin. I have no doubt that prayers, fervent prayers, have their way, and God works his miracle to help us all find, realize, and locate our destiny. And I think it wasn't just the fall in the canal that changed Garfield, that caused him to change his destiny and go to law school instead of living life as a canal worker. 
he already knew inside what his mother told him was true. He was a man of great worth. Education was his path. His destiny was calling. So when he fell in the river and a miracle saved his life, that was just the catalyst to cause him to move on to what he knew he should do. Now, what about you? What destiny, what calling, what purpose has been stirring inside of you? It may not be big. It doesn't have to be. Destiny most often comes in small and simple things that you decide to do. And if you're like me and many other people, you've likely felt the promptings of that destiny for some time. Now, some of you may not think you have a destiny, but you do. Sometimes God presents it, and sometimes you have to open your eyes to see it. And most of the time, you need both. But it is there waiting for you, and it's likely different, better than what you thought your destiny ever was before. Perhaps your destiny is to be a person of integrity, to earn a place in heaven, and to leave this life doing what you feel is right and good. Perhaps you're destined to help others to build a business to enhance lives, or a host of other good and worthwhile things. You know, one definition of destiny is the hidden power believed to control what will happen in the future. Now, I believe this is true, but I do not believe at all that destiny is predetermined and out of our control. I do believe that there is a hidden power working, and it is likely the result of a mother's prayer, like Garfield's destiny, or God prodding you to go in the direction of happiness and service, or your own educated conscience that is anchored in truth and experience that is talking to you, asking you to move towards your destiny. Whatever it might be, here's what I know from experience. When you give yourself to that feeling, to that destiny, you will find you. It will enrich and bring more meaning into your life. And as James Garfield said, The truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. And yes, like any truth that you find in life, following your destiny at first can be a struggle, just as any change or any mountain you climb is a struggle. So the first question for you today is this, do you believe you have a destiny waiting or calling in life? And if so, then what is it? When you answer these two questions, And perhaps you're not sure of what your destiny may be. But when you answer these two questions, your life will take on a different tone. You will see purpose and beauty that you haven't seen before. Now, here's an example of the power of destiny to impact your life and mine. If you really knew, I mean, you saw a vision. And in that vision, it was certain. It was destiny that your nine-year-old son would grow up to be a world-renowned heart surgeon. Would you treat him differently? Well, yes, because you know who he really is. Your language would be different when you talk to him. What you talked about in your home would change. What school you enrolled him in, what after-school programs you encouraged him to take, and how you interacted with him would all take on a different tone. And when he failed his first science test, you wouldn't let him drop science because you know who he really is. Because of what you see as his destiny or believe he can become, you act differently. That is the power of destiny. The famous NC basketball coach, the late Jimmy Valvano, often repeated my favorite words. God must have loved ordinary people because he made so many of us. 
But every day in every walk of life, ordinary people do extraordinary things. You have a destiny, and you are extraordinary. And sometimes we and you need a reminder of just how precious you are in the eyes of your maker. It's easy to lose sight of it. But this, I know for sure that you and I have a purpose and we are made to be exceptional. I feel this right to the core. I believe that regardless of our poor choices or mistakes or our past, we can change and choose the path that leads to our destiny. I know this firsthand. As a young man, I worked on a sod farm. Sod is mature grass cut from the ground along with several inches of soil beneath the grass held together by roots. And to cut the sod, we used a large diesel harvester that weighed approximately 14 tons. It was mid-July, and I was assigned to work with my classmate on the back of the harvester. The harvester's blade was set to penetrate the ground about two inches below the surface, lifting an 18-inch wide strip of grass, roots, and dirt onto a conveyor. The sod was then conveyed from the front of the harvester to the rear, where large rotating blades would cut the sod into four-foot strips. Our job was to stack the 40-pound sod strips onto pallets. And to do the stacking, we stood on platforms built over the double set of dual wheels in the rear of the harvester that carried the weight of the workers on each side of the machine. After two hours of work, we were moving the harvester from one end of the field to the other, and I was walking alongside the slow-moving harvester, and I attempted to jump onto the platform to sit next to my friend. I misjudged my jump and landed only part way on the platform. I lost my balance and fell off the platform in front of the double set of moving dual wheels. I immediately tried to scurry out of the path of the wheels, but the big knobby tires caught my high top sneakers and the wheels started to roll up my leg, throwing me to the ground. I quickly realized I was in quite a predicament. Now I was laying feet first directly in the path of wheels that were going to roll over the entire length of my body, starting with my feet and ending with my head. As the wheels rolled up my right leg, I felt my distal femur break in half above my knee. Next, the wheels and knobby tires rolled onto my pelvis, crushing it ruthlessly. I had never felt anything so excruciatingly painful. My back and ribs were next to break in multiple places as the wheels crumpled my stomach and chest. Then the machine mercilessly twisted me onto my back with the knobby treads passing over my shoulder and the side of my face and neck, miraculously missing most of my head. By the time the 14 tons finished their devastating work, I had lost consciousness. And the first thing I remember when I opened my eyes was the inconceivable pain. I couldn't breathe. I felt like I was underwater. I was trying to breathe, but it wasn't working the way it was supposed to. I couldn't speak. I couldn't cry out, e even though I frantically wanted to cry for help. Everything hurt. And I quickly grasped the fact that I was going to die. Honestly, the pain was so extreme that I wanted to die. I just wanted it to stop. I later learned that I had suffered a traumatic pneumothorax, or in simple terms, my lungs had collapsed. If there's a puncture in your lung due to trauma, the air escapes from the lung to the area outside of your lungs, yet inside your chest cavity, and as a result, your lungs are pushed together like a wet paper sack. The air inside your chest cavity is unable to escape, and the pressure keeps the lungs from expanding, 
And this can lead to cardiac arrest or respiratory failure. Everything in my body was screaming for oxygen. And in my desperation to breathe, I had to expand my chest cavity to gather air. And the pain of my broken ribs and back from even the slightest movement was more than I could endure. I knew I was going to die. I was just waiting for the moment I could die and the pain would go away. I was just waiting for my last breath for things to go dark. Then the farm manager, Stan, arrived out of breath. He could sense I was deep in shock and on the verge of death. He asked if I could move my legs. I couldn't respond. He knelt on the ground, took my head in his hands, and started to talk to me. Whatever reason, his words reached through my panic and pain. He told me I was strong. He prayed that I would live. Before that moment, I had, it had never entered into my mind that I was going to live. The only thought I had had up until that moment was how long the pain would continue until I could die and make it go away. Stan continued, McKay, you will walk again. I started to believe. He told me I would graduate from school, hold positions of leadership, marry, go to college, and become a father. He told me I would influence people throughout my life. These words had a profound effect on my thinking. It was as if there was a tremendous tug of war going on inside of me. On one end of the rope was panic and pain, pulling me towards closing my eyes and giving in to death's grip. On the other end was the hope Stan's words were giving me. And in spite of all that was going on around me, I started to see, to imagine the very words Stan was speaking to me. And I started to lay hold on what he was saying. I started to believe. It would be more than 15 minutes, which seemed like 15 years before the ambulance would arrive. And the hospital ordered an insertion of a chest tube. This meant they would cut through my chest cavity and insert a tube to evacuate the excess air from inside my chest. It hurt bad. I didn't think I could cope. But soon thereafter, the pain in my chest subsided and I could breathe a little better. It took almost a year for me to recover. And much of that time, I spent flat on my back in bed. And I had to learn to walk again. And like Stan said, I did. As Stan told me, I did graduate and marry and go to college. My goal in graduate school was to get a master's degree in business administration and work for the Procter & Gamble Company. It took a lot of sleepless nights, sacrifice my own money to earn my degree. But I got the job. I remember my first day of work. I parked my car down the road and across the freeway from P&G's headquarters in Cincinnati. As I walked across the overpass bridge to my new job, I felt a huge sense of accomplishment. I'd done it. I was about to start a career for which I had struggled and sacrificed. But suddenly, my thoughts changed. And do you know what I noticed? I noticed I was walking. And I remembered the words Stan told me when he said, you will walk again. You will hold positions of leadership and make a difference in the world. And a sudden rush of pins and needles hit me and brought on this flood of emotion. There I was, dressed in my new suit, headed for my first day of professional work, crying like a baby as I walked into my new life. Now, I've reflected on that July day in 1977 many times. I felt Stan's words were a proclamation of my destiny in life. I felt it a thousand times since. And that proclamation has led me to do and try more than I might have tried or done otherwise. Now, my destiny is not some great thing. I won't ever be president like James Garfield. But James Garfield said, 
There are men and women who make the world better just by being the kind of people they are. They have the gift of kindness or courage or loyalty or integrity. It matters very little whether they are behind the wheel of a truck or running a business or bringing up a family. They teach truth. They do good. They live their destiny. They teach truth by living it. Now, I have another thing in common with James Garfield. A few months after my accident, I could get out of bed and move along with a walker very slowly. One morning, as I shuffled down the hallway, I heard my parents in my dad's office. The door was slightly ajar. As I looked and listened, I could hear and see that they were kneeling together, my mom and dad, in prayer. I heard them pray for me, not just for me to recover, but so I could change and become a good man that I would make better choices and rise to my potential. And I have no doubt that the accident, that what happened to me, like Garfield, was a turning point in my life. Because after that, I did feel I had a destiny. There's a great feeling of peace that comes with moving towards what you know is your destiny. As Jim Rohn taught, it's like a magnet. The more we define where we're headed, the better we can describe it, The harder we work on it, the stronger its pull. There is likely a magnetic pull in your life, something attracting your energy. What would happen if you really gave yourself to that thing? Perhaps it's something you're already doing, but the feeling you feel is saying to you, get wholehearted, give yourself fully to it. Now, some of you listening today are building a business or raising a family or trying to overcome a habit or two. What if you saw your destiny in these things that you were meant to do, destined to do what you're trying to do? Like the parent of the nine-year-old destined to become a scientist, you too would act different. But I've noticed few people really think about their destiny. When asked, their answers are vague or general. People can easily talk about what they want, but not necessarily what their destiny might be. But then there are those who are looking and seeking and working towards their destiny. And history shows us that the whole world gets out of the way and often aligns itself for people who know their destiny. We often think destiny is for someone else or someone younger or someone older. As Matthew Kelly says, do not say I'm too old. Don't say I'm too young. Tiger Woods was three years old when he shot a 48 for nine holes on his hometown golf course. Julie Andrews was eight years old when she mastered an astounding four-octave range. Mozart was eight years old when he wrote his first symphony. Paul McCartney was 15 when John Lennon invited him to join his band. Bill Gates was 19 when he co-founded Microsoft. Henry David Thoreau was 27 when he moved to Walden Pond, built a house, planted a garden, and began his experiment on simplicity and self-reliance. Ralph Lauren was 29 when he started Polo. Shakespeare was 31 when he wrote Romeo and Juliet. Thomas Jefferson was 33 when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Mother Teresa was 40 when she founded the Mission of Charity. Jack Nicholas was 46 when he shot 65 in the final round to win the Masters. Henry Ford was 50 when he started his first manufacturing company. Pablo Picasso was 55 years old when he painted Guernica. Oscar Hammerstein was 64 years old when he wrote the lyrics to The Sound of Music. Winston Churchill was 65 years old when he became Britain's prime minister. Nelson Mandela was 71 
when he was released from prison, and four years later, he was elected president of South Africa. Michelangelo was 72 when he designed the dome of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Yuichiro Muida was 80 years old when he climbed Mount Everest. And Mathea Allen Smith was 92 years old when she ran and completed the Boston Marathon. Here's the thing. You're not too young, too old, too far behind, too late, or too early to take your steps towards your destiny. There are people hoping and praying that you will. The scripture tells us that God has given to everyone a gift and that those gifts that he gives us are different and diverse for a reason so that we can use what we're good at, what we are given, what we are called to give for the good of those around us. And perhaps your destiny is to do exactly that, to help others while you do what you are meant to do. To see firsthand the power of this principle, we don't have to go any further than Clemson University and Coach Dabo Sweeney. Even though Clemson isn't currently ranked in the top 10 in football, they have won several national championships in the last several years. Dabo's father was a chronic alcoholic. As a boy, many nights, when the screaming and abuse got to be too much, Dabo would crawl out his window and retreat onto the roof to escape. At age 13, his parents got a divorce. Dabo and his mom moved into one apartment after another and were often evicted because she couldn't find a way to pay rent. Dabo wanted to be the first in his family to attend college, so he worked hard in school. He was accepted to the University of Alabama, and he and his mother moved to Tuscaloosa. There they lived in a one-room apartment while Dabo attended school. Dabo had a dream to play wide receiver in college football, and he did. As he graduated, so did his goals in life. His goal, he decided, his destiny was to be a head coach by the age of 40. So after graduating from college, he became a graduate assistant for the football team. Then after nine years as a lower-level assistant coach at Alabama, he and the other coaches were fired. For two years, he worked outside of football wondering if his vision, his destiny, would ever become a reality. Then a call came from out of the blue from a friend. Come to Clemson and be the recruiting coordinator and receivers coach. He did. He was a natural with people. His personal power was attractive. He was wholehearted with everything that he did. Potential recruits responded to him, and Clemson's recruiting improved dramatically under his leadership. In 2008, the head coach resigned halfway through the season. The athletic director picked Dabo to be the interim head coach. Now, typically when a head coach resigns, the defensive or offensive coordinator takes over, but Dabo had done such a good job as the recruiting coordinator and lower-level coach, he was given the opportunity. Dabo was told the job was his to earn. At the end of the season, he would be given an interview, but he was not guaranteed the head coaching job moving forward. He had 48 days left in the season to prove to the world that he belonged as a head coach. But immediately, the critics came out of the woodwork. He hadn't been a head coach. He hadn't led an offense. He was only 39 years old. He had no proven track record. And even Sweeney started to buy into the rhetoric. I'm too young. The system won't let me make it. Is this really what I want to do? That first week, Coach Sweeney couldn't sleep. And he wouldn't sit in the head coach's office to work. You see, he believed it really wasn't his destiny. He was not the head coach. He was only the interim coach. Plus, he couldn't do the job anyway. At least that's what everyone was saying, right? 
And when he did walk into the head coach's office, he felt like an imposter. Imagine, here he was on the verge of his dream, his destiny, with the opportunity to lay hold of it, and he was going to give up because of doubt. Well, as Sweeney tells the story, three days before his first game, early in the morning, he pulled into the parking lot. Now, as a recruiting coordinator, you didn't have an assigned parking spot. But as a head coach, you do. And the head coach's parking spot was available, but Dabble hadn't been parking there. He didn't see himself as the head coach. So in the midst of this uncertainty, for whatever reason, this day, he pulled his car into the head coach's parking space, something he had never done, as if to say, maybe I am stepping up to my deserved position. In the pre-dawn darkness, his headlights illuminated the parking space's number, 88, the same number he wore when he was a wide receiver. He took it as a positive sign. And Sweeney would later say, it was kind of like heaven was saying, you can do this. I've got your back. He walked in and sat in the head coach's office. And he said after he settled into the head coach's office, that day he received an email, a daily devotional. The scripture that day, Revelation 3, 8. For I know what you have done, and I have opened a door for you that no one can shut. Sweeney said when the email showed up, a feeling of peace surrounded him. And along with it came the belief that this was his destiny. With that assurance, Clemson would go on to beat Boston College, trounce South Carolina, and finish the season with four of five remaining wins. Dabo became the head coach of the Clemson Tigers at age 40. Since Clemson has won the national championship several times. Here's the thing. You too can step up to your destiny. Don't let today pass without looking at your destiny and make a few small steps to make it a reality in your life. And watch. You will find more joy, a greater sense of purpose, and fulfillment in all that you do. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.